So when we sat down to talk with our next two guests, we were already big fans. And some of us, I'm looking straight at you, Sarah. No. Um, we're <laughs> definitely on the verge of fangirling hard throughout the start of this episode. These two had presented as part of the Embodied Social Justice Certificate course that we had taken together this summer, and their theme was clear, how we end racism in one generation. So if you just heard that and your immediate reaction was, no, that is impossible, then maybe you need to hear this episode more than you think, because their method is not one of hammering hard facts into people's, people's heads. It's an approach based primarily on love, compassion, and our shared humanity. We talk in depth about the conversations that can bring seemingly opposite people together, even when issues of politics and race would normally divide them. And if you're looking for more tips on how to have those uncomfortable conversations that may be happening, say, in the next couple of weeks around your own holiday tables, we've got those details in depth next week. But at the end of this particular chat, we realize that this is the conversation that we all collectively need to have if we're serious about moving the needle when it comes to racism. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Would you please introduce yourselves for our audience? Sure. I'm Shelley Tagelski. I am an author. I'm a self-care activist. I'm a mindfulness teacher, a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher, and I primarily work in spaces with traumatized and underserved populations. Hey everyone, I'm Justin Michael Williams, also an author, speaker, teacher, and a lot of my work really falls into the line of bringing people together across different divides by doing the very practical inner work that they need to do to be ready to connect across different divides, and sometimes those divides are within themselves. And sometimes those divides are with other people. So I'm really grateful to be here with you all today to dig into how we can do this together. And so one thing you all should know, just as a context, is Shelly and I have a program together called the Liberation Experience. And that program specifically brings people together across divides and teaches them how to connect in compassionate spaces where it sometimes feels like there should be tension. And we're also working on both what will be both of our second book together right now. It's actually due in a few months. And the book is titled How We Ended Racism, Changing the Future of the World in One Generation. And so we're really excited to have this conversation today because this is like what we love. And yeah, thank you for holding this space for us. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to come back to that topic of ending racism in just a little bit. You know, Misash and I were first inspired by both of you not just by the runaway hits you both have had, Justin, with your music and Stay Woke, you know, Shelly with your Pandemic of Love and now your new book. We actually came across you through the Embodied Social Justice Certificate course through Reverend Angel, Angel Kyoto Williams that we took this summer. You know, yours was a module that stood out to us, both of us individually. And whether it was your energy or the practicality of your conversation, I don't know. It was just this like wow factor that really, when we reflect back on the entire program, we felt really compelled to reach out to both of you. So we're really excited to be here with you and share this conversation. But given that we're also very practically focused on the idea of inviting more white women into uncomfortable conversations about race, you know, I really want to dive into what you just shared about ending racism as a thing that won't happen until we proclaim that we can end it within this generation. Like there is a time frame, and we can end it now. And a lot of people would say, 
how is that possible? You know, can you talk to us starting with that? And I think, you know, Misasha, you had a thought about that too. Well, I love, clearly, we're not shying away from bold statements here on the podcast. And I want to start with that concept of end racism, because that in and of itself is a big statement, and I think very different than how we hear that discussion framed. So I'd love to hear more about that statement and how you both, you know, found your way to this work and idea in the first place. So last year, I had this kind of epiphany moment. I was sitting in a very privileged place, actually. I was just like in a hot t- hot spring in Big Sur at Esalen <laughs> Institute. And I was reading all the books. You know, I, it was after George Floyd and, you know, was murdered. And I was reading all the books and doing all the things. And I'd already been doing work in this space. But, you know, there was just this kind of burst or blossoming open of work at that time and resources. And I just had this thought. I said, gosh, like, I thought, I'll frame it this way. I have a lot of friends because I'm in the queer community and the LGBTQIA plus community. And I have a lot of friends who remember being alive and working when the AIDS and HIV epidemic first broke out in the 80s. And I remember them saying, and I have many friends who were very involved in the movement, and they said, in the beginning, we used to say, we're finding a cure for this. And if we do our jobs, we won't have jobs when this is done. Like, that's our goal. And then a lot of them left the space because they realized as soon as the community started to recognize that you made more money by just keeping people treated forever instead of curing them, to have them have to take a pill every day for the rest of their life, that a lot of people stopped focusing on a cure and started focusing on treatment. And a lot of people left then. That always really stuck with me because we think about cancer, right? And everybody's like, find the cure for cancer. Well, if we find the cure for cancer, and I have several friends who are oncologists, like then all of these people around the world with these big equipments and these big labs and these entire college campuses that are like for cancer research, like everything would just vanish overnight, right? So there are so many people who are invested in the idea of it continuing because we profit on the continuation of the problem existing on both sides, right? And so I was sitting there in the tubs at Esalen and I was reading everything about racism and this and this and that. And I said, God, why is it that we're basing like all of our work, even the idea of lifelong anti-racism and all of this stuff, like why are we basing all of this off the idea that this is never, ever going to end ever? And if that's the basis that we're, putting it on, then that's what we're going to create, you know? And it feels like sometimes an unpopular thing to say, but like, if I say this very openly now, and with a lot of fear at first of saying things like this, but the language anti-racism, I actually don't like. Like, I like the work that's happening in anti-racism, but the word anti-racist to define yourself as somebody who's anti-racist means that racism must exist for you to have that identity. And so in the work that's saying you have to be a lifelong anti-racist, well, it's saying, well, okay, then racism is going to always persist. And that's not what I want us to set up as that. Why would that be the goal that we'd be working toward just to make this marginally better to make every generation forward have to deal with the same issue? And so I'll be very clear, like, I'm not that much of an optimist to think like, oh my God, we can just like, you know, get rid of, because othering is part of what we know scientifically of the human condition. But the idea of othering on the basis of something as ridiculous as the color of someone's skin 
which is basically how close their you know lineage was to the equator, is just why is that something that we can't change? And so I wrote this article called Ending Racism, How to Change the World in One Generation. And it ended up going viral, which was really cool. And I put a pledge on it. And people can find that at endingracismtogether.com. And then I talked to Shelly and I was like, Shelly, am I crazy? <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> I was like, am I crazy or is this just like, is no one talking about this? Like, why are we all in this assumption? And so then Shelly and I started to collaborate and I'll let you pick up from there, Shelly. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember you actually sent me the article to read before you even posted it, right? I think I was like uh, in charge of editing it or letting you know. And I sensed a big hesitation for you because it was sort of like this. It could have been perceived as a coming out against, right? Or a criticism at a time when, especially in the summer of 2020, which is when it came out, you know, the movement was really just finally starting to gain an immense amount of momentum and recognition. And almost in a sense, for the first time, it started to feel legitimized, if you will, by the media, you know, and in mainstream. And so I sense that fear in you. And I remember you and I having this conversation and I, you know, suggested a few edits But the thing that captured it for me, Justin, was the fact that, you know, in the article you include, and you know, I'm like a very visual person, but you include this like little image, this graphic basically of like, you know, we can either run away from something or we can be running towards something. And the movements that are, you know, happening feel like we're running away from something. And there's nothing clearly defined as like a finish line that we're actually collectively holding hands and running towards. And so that for me was a very much a moment where it landed. And I recognized my, you know, whether at that point, I didn't know that Justin and I were going to wind up teaching together around this context, but I recognized my hand, the hand that I have to, you know, sort of reach out. And in this context, you know, be responsible for making sure that I'm running towards something that I have a hand defining what I'm running towards. And so I think, you know, Shelly and I, once we started working together on this and being that we both have, you know, backgrounds in mindfulness and the science of change, and we both geek out on brain science and neuroscience and transformation and understanding what, you know, we have a woo side because we're mindfulness teachers and, you know, can be in the spiritual space, but we're also just like very practical and studied and rational around how things work. And, we started to just look at like, what does it actually take for things to change? And we started to really collaborate on our program, The Liberation Experience, and now our book. And hopefully getting people, I think the first step is to get people to even think, I'm sure there are people listening to this right now, to even think the question, oh, wait, I've never thought about it ending. Like I've never even thought of that possibility. It's never even crossed my mind as an option. Right. That we could think of racism ending. And that alone is a context shift, you know, to even just question it, even if you don't think it's possible. Yeah. So that's kind of where we sit with all of this. Well, the other thing I think that we offer, Justin, in the course, and this sort of evolved over the cohorts that we taught, right? Because there's always like ways that we can continue to tweak and evolve and improve the process. But as a white woman, I, you know, read the books. I read many books and studied and was very involved even prior to, you know, the summer of 2020. 
in my community, in communities that are affected by the systems and by, you know, gun violence, et cetera, police brutality. And it was very clear to me that, you know, A, people who are like me, white women like me, who read these, this required reading, if you will, don't know what to do with it after they're done reading. They kind of just, you know, feel shame and anger and empathy and all of these other emotions that, of course, come up when reading about the history. But there is no roadmap for them. There's no roadmap for how do we begin to reconcile? Okay, I have all this information. This is an atrocity. This is terrible. But what are we going to do about it? You know, and one of the questions that I also talk about in my own book is really that shift from, you know, yes, identifying and being self-aware of like what is happening definitely in the world, but also within ourselves as a response to it. But then shifting to ask, you know, what am I going to do about it? And how do I come from a place of love? And so I think that very much, you know, this course and the book that is based on the course that Justin and I are, are teaching together has this sort of a roadmap the tools that people need. We like to say we give people all of these different tools to put in their toolbox to help expand their toolbox. And some may resonate with them today. Some may never resonate with them. Some may resonate with them later because they're not ready for them at this moment. But the idea is that if you can kind of have this like Swiss army knife of, you know, a plethora of tools, then, you know, you'll be prepared for things that can come up to actually be able to not only just deal with them, but I think even thrive in that moment and sort of grab somebody else's hand and and take them along for the ride. I love the Swiss army knife of tools. You know, one of the things I know about your work is that, and the way that I think a lot of people position dismantling racism, uprooting racism as something that we have to do out there. But one of the things that Misasha and I have said, and what really resonates with us about the work you do is how it's so much starting with our internal reflection, knowing ourselves our histories, how we show up. And I think that is one of the most critical steps that people often forget to take, especially at a time where so many, like our whole society is geared towards chasing the money, doing all these external things. We don't find people take the time to reflect and know what their own inherent beliefs are and experiences are that have shaped their views around race and difference and identity to this point. As part of knowing ourselves, one of the things that Misasha and I've talked about is this idea of self-care and boundaries, because talking about racism, talking about sort of being a human, right? If we're not going to buy into the system of we have to dehumanize ourselves and go chase the money at all costs and reinfuse our lives with this sustainable humanity, we do need to do some self-care. How do you think that plays into dismantling racism? Well, I would say that there's two parts of this. The first is that, very simply put, the best version of the world starts with the best version of ourselves. That's first and foremost. So I'll repeat that for people. The best version of the world starts with the best version of ourselves. And so if you start there, and then you move to the second point, which is that the self that we've come to know and define is way more than just this physical body that we're in, right? If we can agree that the self extends even energetically, right? And I'm not talking about this in a woo-woo type of a way, but really just energetically like extends beyond us. Our interconnection to the past and the future generations, our connection to every person that we come in contact with knowingly, 
directly and indirectly on a daily basis, right? Who's the things that we do and say affect their lives, whether it's known to us or unknown to us. So the self that I define really in my book and that I talk about when I work with social activists, when I work with, you know, with individuals that are really on the front lines and our community organizers to help them. Kelly, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. You know, I never do this unless it's important. I just had a thought to like really ground this idea of the self energetically expanding. Sure. Tell people like really get that. So like, for example, that you can look at this in a thousand different ways, but like whoever's listening to this right now, you're listening to Shelly and I, and we're having some impact energetically but we're having an impact on your psyche, your mind, your emotion, helping you learn something. Sarah and me, Sasha are here. We're all having this conversation and doing this, but you're listening to a recording. Our physical bodies are somewhere else doing something else right now, right? Like doing something completely different. We're not in this space with you live, but the energy of who we are as beings is actually rippling out to you right now, not even in, in the same time space continuum. And so like in every way that you can think of that from the people who make your food to the people who make the plates that you eat your food on, Shelly gives these kind of examples to everything that we do, our energy is very directly impacting people beyond the physical body that is you right now in this moment. So I just wanted to like, yeah, give that was a very clear example, you know? Well, that's actually a perfect segue. Thank you for that, Justin. We're, we are just an extension of each other, as you could tell already. But really, the idea here is that the self is not individualistic. The self is very much communal. And so when we talk about self-care and we frame it that way, then self-care really isn't just about ourselves, right? When we heal ourselves, we're healing other people. And when other people heal themselves, they're healing us. So the quality of the way that we show up in this world is very different. And it also helps us build something, you know, that Dr. Amishi Jha refers to as pre-resilience, right? Pre-covery. We like to throw around these terms of like, let's build resilience, but like pre-resilience. It's about being able to know that we have this like bank account that's available for ourselves that can assist us and assist others that are in our community and help to really create this beautiful Uh, redistribution of wealth. And I'm using the term wealth very loosely, because I think when we talk about wealth in our Westernized cultures, we say, we think automatically, oh, wealth equals money. But wealth can mean so many other things, right? People have time poverty, people have data poverty, people have energy poverty. And so we all in our community have something that we can offer. And we all have something that we need. Uh, regardless of our socioeconomic status. And so it all kind of has to start with the fact that we're willing to sit with, you know, what we define as ourselves in this physical body and begin to understand our interconnectivity to our circles of influence, the people that we immediately come into contact with and how that expands out in a much greater way. I really, I like that. I like the circles and thinking about it in that way, because I think, you know, something that we read or I read in your book, Shelley, but also I hear you both speak about and something that we really focus on is the role of community, right? And especially during a time when people will, A, after these, you know, past 19 months and everyone being isolated or people now feel like they're too busy to connect. And 
I think, Shelley, in the introduction to your book, you say this great quote, courage is cultivated through our need for connection. Connection is cultivated due to the basic human need for love. And love encourages us to be more courageous. It's a cycle. I would love for you both to talk about how do these three components work together when we think about community or when we deal with exhaustion, right? Or feel like the problems out there are too large, right? When people are thinking, if people have listened to this right now and thinking like, okay, end racism, I've never thought about that before, but wow, that sounds like just something that I can't even fathom when I can't even think about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, right? Yeah. Well, I'll start with this, Justin, if that's okay with you. Like, I think that the problem is, is that people think about this concept of ending racism on a global level. And I want people to start thinking about it more on like, imagine there's a fill in the blank after ending racism and it's ending racism in my household, ending racism in my family, ending racism in my community, ending racism in my child's school, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a beautiful Buddhist proverb that says, you know, that we should tend to the areas of the garden that we could reach. If we all just took responsibility for tending to the areas of the gardens that we could reach, just our garden, not our neighbor's garden, not, you know, the person a mile away or the next state over, but just our gardens. If we each just did that, right? And we each just took care of what we could control, imagine what the world would look like when we kind of really just use that analogy and overlay it on top of the concept of ending racism. So I think that, yes, when you look at things broadly and the aperture is wide, then yes, it is daunting. There are so many daunting problems in the world that we cannot directly control. But when you can kind of just hone in and narrow on the things that you can control, and there's a lot we can control, right? And it starts with our own responses and reaction, understanding that we have this conditioning that we need to start examining, that we need to do the shadow work. We need to get into the dark recesses of our mind in order to show up differently in the world. You know, if we start there, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the other thing that I'll share just to echo this in a way is I experience this. Through, people will often ask me, you know, Justin, like, as a queer black man, like, how are you so positive, <laughs> like an optimistic about what can happen in the world, you know? And it's really because I experienced it in my own family and in my own life in a very direct way. And this is a story that people in our program know, and that is in my book, but not one that like I've written about anywhere before. And so I'm half black, follow this, I'm half black, half Persian and Middle Eastern, but my mom my dad's black, my mom's Persian. My mom is adopted when she was two days old into an Italian Catholic family. And so I grew up in a half black, basically half Italian Catholic, you know, upbringing. And when my mom and dad, my mom being, you know, in this Catholic family, and my dad being a black guy got engaged, my grandparents actually disowned my mom because they said, no, no, no. Even though back then uh, Italians weren't even considered white, at that point in time. And my family wouldn't have called themselves racist. They were like, no, our daughter, she cannot marry, you know, a Negro, you know, as it would be called at that time. And so they kicked my mom out of the house. They literally disowned her and kicked her out. My mom got married to my dad. None of my family was at her wedding. 
And what happened after that was really where I saw the difference of what happens when we show up for each other and show up knowing that we're going to make mistakes, but also knowing that we're all pointing in the same direction of change. And so half of my family said, if you welcome Barbara, who's my mom back into the family, we'll never speak to you again. And the other half of the family said, we're welcoming her back. And so it literally split this Italian Catholic family that literally came on a boat from Sicily to the United States together, like split them in two. And the side of the family that, you know, didn't come with really missed out on a magical experience of what happened on the other side. And I mean, they held the grudge so tight that literally all those family members, nine brothers and sisters from Italy, all of them, but one have died. And the four and the four that split didn't go to each other's funerals. That's how much of a grudge was there. But the half of the family that stayed and came together, I, we watched, I literally watched this growing up in my household, watched racism disintegrate. And it didn't disintegrate by, we are all one, kumbaya, we love you now, love and light. No, that's not the way that it happened, right? It happened by bumping up against these little breakdowns that would happen in the family, but everybody knowing, everyone knowing, we're going to make hella fucking mistakes here. We are going to mess up. We're going to say the wrong thing. We don't know how to do this, but we are all knowing that we all have the same intention of what we're walking toward. And we're walking toward a family that is united, connected in love. And this is why I think we're having such a hard time in our world right now connecting and why people feel shut down and shame and guilt and they don't know what to do. And we're having all these divides because if you don't have a vision of what you're walking toward, then all we have to talk about is what we're fighting against. This is what Shelly started talking about. Right. And so in our desire to be anti-racist, right. we don't have all we have in common is what we're fighting against. Right. We don't have this vision in common to say, Hey, even though in our process, we're going to mess up, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to say the wrong thing, oops, ouch, all those things happen. Where do we all aligned on? Where are we all walking toward? And because we saw that in my family, you would be hard pressed to find racism in our family. I mean, really, you'll find it somewhere because I know, you know, we can find it everywhere. We all have work to do. I mean, it would be really challenging though, you know, to have somebody do a study on that. So anyway, this is like a part of, you know, the process that we can go through together. Right. And I think, you know, just to throw this in there, because as you're telling the story, Justin, like you could fast forward to 2008, which is when my husband, Jason, and I got married. And so this is long after Barbara got married, you know, and my parents disowned me because they essentially, you know, sat Shiva, which in Judaism is like, you know, basically declaring that the person is dead to you. And my parents disowned me because I married a non-Jew. My parents who are Orthodox Jews and very traditional in the household that I grew up in. And so, and now I have this incredibly beautiful relationship and my mother and my husband, you know, gang up on me like very often. <laughs> and they actually have this incredibly beautiful relationship too. But as Justin was saying, you know, it came from a place of love and reconciliation and really hard work and a lot of screw ups along the way, you know, but I think the commonality is that you create this, the conditions, the safe spaces to be able to make the mistakes and to come back from them. 
And I think that part of the problem, and this is something that Justin and I talk a lot about in the class and that we try to teach people how to have difficult conversations, how to come back from these ouch, oops moments, you know, whether you're basically, you know, affected by them or whether you're the person causing that moment and that harm is, you know, just kind of moving away from that cancel culture and that gaslight culture that we're living in, you know, because it doesn't allow for people to feel like they're in a safe space. And I think that that's why there's a lot of hesitancy, especially amongst white people to be able to do this work because they're like deathly afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or that they're going to do the wrong thing. And so we address all that in our class. And certainly we're going to delve a lot deeper into it in the book. I really love that. Well, first of all, that just the story, the family stories and how you can see that, how families, you love each other, right? To, and use that love. And yes, sometimes it doesn't work. And I can think of examples in my own family when my Japanese father and my white American mother got married and there were certain white relatives from the South who absolutely were not going to welcome my father in. And as a result, we never went to see those relatives. And to this day, I do not know that side of my family. But then I think about my own husband, who's black, and my, you know, brother's wife, who's from Iran. And like, it's just the way in which love shows up in family and looks at difference, right? And how an acceptance and change and mistake. I think that's such a powerful thing. What I heard from everybody here is this idea of the family stories and it relating to difference and identities and you're in the in-group or you're in the out-group. And I think what I've heard from some white friends is just like, well, we don't have difference in race in our families. I don't understand. But I think if we all just, and that echoes to me, the similar conversation that I don't know if you, Justin, you get this, but she as Asian women, Misasha and I get the whole, where are you from kind of question. It's like, where do you belong? You're an outsider sort of thing. But I think we're all, for example, children of immigrants to some degree, whether forced or not, or, or if we can ask our white friends, our white listeners to examine their own family history, there might be times where maybe it wasn't based on race. Maybe it was based on education. Maybe it was based on whatever. But we all have histories of othering. Let's explore our own histories, no matter what our identities are, so that maybe we can pull from those lineages and those experiences together and take a lesson forward from that, because that has shaped all of who we are right now. Well, you know, one of the things that you both kind of hinted on that I'll pull the thread on just a little bit more is this idea of, and I think this is a big growth edge for all of us in society who are in the movement for creating a better world and for change. It's like any company, anything like really psychologically, a business, you know, any company or a person who wants to do well, like will know in this process of transformation and growth that it takes getting to breakdowns to break through. And it sounds like a cool Instagram quote, but it's just so realistic, right? Like the best companies try to get to the breakdown as quickly as possible because in the breakdown, you build your capacity by learning how to solve the breakdown. And then that helps you grow because you learn how to solve it. But what's happening in our like cancel culture society is as soon as there's a breakdown, we don't go towards collectively solving it. We go towards canceling the person. Right. Right. And shaming and blaming. And so then we lose the opportunity for the breakthrough, which is what the breakdown is there for in the first place, if we choose to look at it that way. And so anyway, I just think that the space of connection, compassion, vulnerability, trust, forgiveness, honesty, these are things that we actually teach inside of our programs because 
those are the qualities that it takes to embody for us to actually even start to end racism. Because even if you just bring a whole bunch of diverse people together, they're not going to do shit but fight each other if we don't know how to do, we don't know how to connect. I mean, first of all, I love that actually just had to write that down because I was thinking, because <laughs> I'm already like starting to think about how we can use that breakdown versus breakthrough. But what I was going to lean into is the fact that, you know, because, you know, you mentioned, Sarah, you, you mentioned that there are some people who just don't really come from diverse families, so they don't know how to relate to that experience. And I think that, I don't really think that's an excuse. <laughs> because I think that in the world that we're living in today, we have so many opportunities to put ourselves in proximate spaces, you know, and I can just say this as somebody who, again, was like, born in Jerusalem, born in Israel to a very Jewish family, lived in a bubble. And if I didn't want to put myself in very uncomfortable spaces and spaces that felt unsafe for me with my Palestinian brothers and sisters, I would have never been able to unravel all this conditioning that I was born into and that I, you know, was reinforced throughout my lifetime. And so, you know, I think we have so many different unique opportunities to extend ourselves and to put ourselves in these spaces, even if they're not in our family. Yes, even in places like the Deep South, even in places where there are the majority of the people are very white, you know, like we can remove ourselves from those spaces and take ourselves to places where we can really learn and experience through proximity. Because I think that only through those personal connections, only based on these like intimate experiences where we can really experience our connected humanity and empathy and fire those, you know, mirror neurons uh, and have sympathetic joy and sympathetic pain for each other, can we ever really, you know, begin to solve these problems and see ourselves as not being the other. I love that because I remember reading that in your book about your experience with the and the Palestinian kid and the popsicle, right? Or <laughs> which was so great. And also the letter that you got from the woman who was sending the Walmart gift cards to the Trump supporter where she was like, I don't think I can do this, but just relating to each other on a basic human level and then starting to see like, where can we have the conversation? Like, yeah, I deeply disagree with a lot of what she says, but I'm going to send her kids these books, you know? And so I, I just, I think that there are those opportunities. You're right. And I also want to go back to, because I also want to hear a little bit about the evolution of the course too, because from the article to the course and now to this like amazing book, which I can't wait to read as well. But I would love to hear about that and also about the concept of, you know, running towards something, because I think it's something that Sarah and I have really focused on, especially with regards to like the elections. You know, we've heard a lot of people say they're not going to vote for this or they're not going to vote for that. But what do you stand for? Right. Like, what is that and what is the society that you want to see? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that progression. Yeah, it's been a journey, actually. It's been really cool. I mean, so one of the things that we had the privilege of doing this past year is we got independent PhD researchers to do a study on our program. Because before we actually went into running to write the book or do anything, we said, let's make sure this works. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, let's make sure this is actually working. 
And the good news is, is it works. And so we're really happy about the feedback that we got. But the second thing that we learned, which was not surprising to us, but we were surprised insofar as how widely it spread is has to do with this quote. Like I heard a quote once that said, anything that is true with a capital T is true everywhere, right? The truth is it applies everywhere across the board if it's like a real truth. And what we were finding was that we were teaching this course on, you know, ending racism, bringing people together. The researchers did a 90-day follow-up with everyone. And what we found is that they were using the curriculum that we had taught to actually help them across all different kinds of divides, many of which had nothing to do with racism at all. And so it was this kind of healing that started happening in their families, in their communities, around setting boundaries, around how they were showing up, that was changing them at a personal level internally so deeply that their whole world outside of them was starting to shift. And we were pretty blown away by that, you know, but it goes back to what Shelly and I were sharing in the beginning, which is, you know, our work, and I think it will continue to be this way. And what we hope to be able to offer to the world is yes, practical, actionable tools, but that first come from a deep inner resourcing and inner working. We're not the inner work teachers that are just like sit in navel gaze and pray and send love and light. Like we're not, those are not the teachers that we are. We want to do that, those things, but we have to take it out into the world and actually take an action. An example that I love to give that I think most people listening will relate to is, you know, how many of us have been in a relationship with someone, whether that relationship is romantic or not, could be even a friendship got out of that relationship or friendship because we realized it wasn't right for us anymore. And then got into a whole new relationship. You could even move cities, switch schools, get into a whole new relationship and soon realize that you're in the same relationship with a different person. And that's because if we haven't changed within, then we can't show up to any relationship differently, whether it's with ourselves, with a person, with social justice, with our bodies, with our art, with our business, with our creativity, with our money. You could change the whole external circumstance, a whole different person, and you'll create the same thing. And what we don't want is for people to keep taking all these actions, all this work, all the marching, all the protesting, all the everything that we're doing to just turn around and recreate a similar system that's just oppressing people again, that looks slightly different. This is why the inner work is so important for us, so that we can actually create a real transformation. I'll end with this is there's a difference between change and transformation. And we focus so much on change in our work for a better world, but they're not the same thing. Things change all the time. You change your clothes, you change your hair. When something changes, you can just go back to what was, right? When something transforms, what was is no longer available to you. You can't, like a caterpillar can't go to a butterfly and go, you know what? Mm, I don't like these color wings. Never mind. Like, let me go back, right? It transformed into something new. And so we have to get our work to a place where who we were as a society and who we were as individuals, that that place is actually no longer available for us to return to. And that's where the inner work really comes into play. So that resonates with me on a very deep level. And I think, as I said, so much of this work is linked to inner reflection. And it is, it's this, we always say it's this process of self-reflection, but I love this idea of it being a transformation because now that I know what I know, I can never go back to how I was. 
And coming at it from this perspective of going back to this idea of a lot of people saying, but I'm tired, like what's in it for me? Because it feels really scary to think about transformation. To me, it feels inherently more joyful. My life will be more rich, like to have this introspection and confidence that I know who I am. I know what I need. I know that other people are also individuals out there doing their thing. And I love and respect them too. Feels like a rewarding enough motivation. But have you heard people push back and say like, I'm scared or what is this going to like, how do you help people navigate that part of the hesitation, that first set of steps to come along on this journey? You know, I liken it to entering into the black box, right? There's a, actually, I think I referenced this princess in the book. So there's this great uh, show on NPR called Radio Lab, and they did this whole episode on black boxes. And I thought, eh, that's not interesting. Cause I thought it was the black box was like, they were going to talk about airplanes and like that thing that like they're always searching for when a plane goes down, you know? And they weren't talking about that at all. What they were talking about is that it's a space where something is known to you that goes in. And something that's known to you comes out, but the in-between is unknown. What happens in between is unknown. And so a lot of people, of course, are hesitant. And to use Justin's example, the butterfly, which is probably why I'm thinking about this, like, yes, we know that a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, into a chrysalis, right? And we know that a butterfly comes out. But most people, or at least I did, because maybe I didn't learn this in um, kindergarten or third grade or whatever stage that I'm supposed to teach you in. But, you know, you don't really think about what actually happens to the caterpillar once it goes into that cocoon. You kind of might think that, oh, yeah, like through stem cells, you know, like a tadpole, like the legs just start popping out or the legs start going back in and the wings start forming. And but actually the caterpillar like just dissolves itself. It becomes this like pile of goo, really literally just a pile of nothing, sticky, icky goo. And, you know, these cells, this liminal state are called imaginal cells. And I love that term because imaginal cells seems very positive. And so if we're willing to imagine that we can be a better version of ourselves, that we can be a more healed version of ourselves, that we can live a better future, that the world can be a better place, right? If we can imagine all of these things with the imaginal cells that are available to us in these dark liminal states, then, you know, maybe we'd be more willing to do the work. And that really, I think, comes full circle back to our initial point of like, what are we running towards? You know, what are we running towards? You're saying that, like, I know that I'm going to be a better version of myself and that there's going to be more available to me. And because you know these things, right? You know what's coming out on the other side. And I think, kind of like where the equation broke down for many people is they know who they are today. They have no idea what's going to happen in this black box and they don't even know what's coming out on the other side. So they're not even willing to go into that dark space because they're like, well, there's no guarantees of what's going to come out on the other side. But what if we all knew what was going to come out on the other side? Maybe we'd all be willing to like go into that darkness together, right? I think that's really the point is if we can define that end goal, then we can actually, I think, all be willing to go in it together. Along those lines of setting the end goal and say the end goal is ending racism, but 
a lot of times, you know, I don't set New Year's resolutions or goals per se. It's my like word of the year. It's our intention. It's that sort of thing. And I know you've mentioned this idea, maybe not here actually, but you have an exercise that if only for today. And I wonder whether it's that or if there are other tools about like what questions we should all be asking ourselves to uncover what our most true intentions or goals, if you will, should be like, how do we uncover our truth and that end goal that feels most likely to be in alignment with who we are as a human? I'll offer you the way that I work with this, particularly around this topic of racism. So I think where a lot of people get lost and people look to Shelly and I for this answer, they're like, well, what does the world look like when there's no more racism? And, you know, we're both kind of like, I don't know. That's for all of us to figure out. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's what we're going to have to do this together. Like, we're just trying to get you to believe that it could happen, you know, but like, but people go, I think, too far into that. And we see this with people when they're trying to like manifest their partner, you know, or like a relationship that they're like trying to imagine exactly what they look like and where they live and all the external circumstances of what it might look like for them to be in the relationship of their dream without going to what it feels like. And I think that's the first thing that we really have to anchor into is what does it feel like? What would it feel like to live in that world? And that's kind of where I'm interested in anchoring into the vision of what does it feel like to live in a world where racism doesn't exist? And then like the question that I think is the most important to ask, which ties in with Shelley's if only for today. And this is even the perspective that I use constantly as I'm doing this work. I think, all right, year 2050, racism has ended. What did Justin Michael Williams do today in 2021? What did I do today? If racism is over in 2050, who was I today to make that future happen? Because the future is nothing but a possibility that hasn't occurred yet, right? And there's many possibilities of what the future can be. So again, to the vision of what we're walking towards, if what I'm walking towards is a future by the year 2050 where there is no more racism, who did I have to be today? And that's the action that I'm most interested in taking and worried about is that who did I have to be today? Instead of trying to get like the clearest photo in my head of what, you know, well, how's that going to happen? What are the logistics? How's it going to work? That's where people get lost, right? Right. And also, Justin, they get lost in like what other people have to do today. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm like, stop thinking about what other people need to do today and just focus on what you need to do today. Yeah. You know, yeah. people go so quick. They're like, oh, racism can end. Well, how's that going to work? Because the government has to do this and then everybody has to do this and then this has to happen and that has to happen and this has to, and it's just like, okay, yes. And what do you need to, let's assume it ended. What would you have had to have done on, you know, November 2nd, 2021? What did you do that day? You know, and that's where we start with any of our goals in our life to, I think, start to really create change with, um, who says the quote, begin with the end in mind. And so that's the way that we combat, combat all of that and hopefully help people anchor in to it all. Well, I think I have a fitting way to, and I don't even know if we're ending this right now, but I have a fitting way that we can end this because I actually would love to read you. You mentioned, you know, a letter that I include in the book from Pandemic of Love from one of the matches we make, but I have a letter that wasn't included in the book that I'd love to read to you. Oh, yes. I know which one you're going to read. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> So this is from a man named Marshall, who's from Greensboro, North Carolina. Marshall writes, hello, pandemic of love. My name is Marshall blank, blank, blank. I won't say his last name. I'm a 55-year-old grandfather from 
Greensboro, North Carolina. I have been living here my entire lifetime. I work in construction and I have been lucky during this pandemic because things were already tight, but I was grateful to be squeaking by every month at a time when so many people are suffering, especially here in my community. You all matched me with a really nice young man named Jacob from San Diego in California, a place I've never been to. He is a student and working on getting his doctorate degree. I was never a good student, so I don't really know what it is like. Jacob was very impressive, and I could not believe it when he told me his age. We had many conversations, and he was kind enough to agree to help me with my rent. I was behind in December because I got sick and had to stay home. If we don't work, we don't get paid. I'm writing to tell you that your program is something special. It does more than help people who need help paying for bills. It really helps to change people, even old dogs like me. I'm not proud of this, but I think it is important for me to tell you, and my daughter thought so too. When I learned that Jacob was Black, I stopped talking to him and did not return his calls or text messages for a few weeks. I was so embarrassed to even ask for help. And then to get help from a Black man as a white man from the South, I don't know why this shook me so much, but it did. This is how I grew up and how I was raised to believe, but I have grandchildren that are mixed and I knew how wrong this was to feel this way in my heart. It did not sit well with me for some reason. I thought about this for a long while and I could not bring myself to tell my daughter or Jacob what my reaction was. I was embarrassed to ask for help, but then even more embarrassed by my reaction. I work side by side every day with diverse people And I did not consider myself to be racist, but meeting Jacob opened my eyes to the fact that I was not being completely honest about that. I knew this is not the person I want to be, but I was not sure how to come out and say it. I decided to call Jacob and tell him the truth, and he was kind about all of it. He even still agreed to help me. And then I decided to write to you all because I still keep in touch with him and I really feel grateful to have him in my life. Just to know that there are good people that are out there doesn't matter what color their skin is. Thank you for making this connection because you also connected me to a part of myself I did not know I needed to look at more closely. Keep doing what you all are doing. God bless you all, Marshall. And that... It's so good. I've heard that so many times and I still love, like, I still listen like to every word, every time I've heard you read it, Shelly. And, you know, it really anchors into, I think the ethos underneath what Shelly and I do, you know, and I think there are kind of two camps, right. As it relates to people who are interested in change. And when you're in certain camps, there's I, what I call the oneness camp. And there's people who are like, we're all one. Like, why can't we just, you know, all just come together? Like, we're all just one human race. You know, we're all one. And so that's one camp. I love Justin's voices when he's pretending to be someone else. You know, you haven't heard Shelly's voices yet. So get ready to get <laughs> something. So, you know, the we are all one camp. And to that camp, I say, like, yeah, check. Okay, like, check the science. Yep, we're all one human race. All come from the same stardust. Yes, yes, yes. But how we experience life on this planet is absolutely not all one, right? So... But if in the idea that we're all one, we can spiritually bypass the differences that are causing harm. And then there's the other camp that a lot of corporations and people feel, which is why I think Shelly and I have done so much corporate work this year, because a lot of companies are seeing that they're doing all this quote unquote diversity work. That's like not really helping at the end of the day. And, you know, there's the diversity camp that's like, we're for diversity and equity and this and that. 
And what I say there is like the world's already diverse. We actually don't even need diversity. Like we have plenty of diversity in the world. What we don't have, okay, is intimacy, proximity, connection, and vulnerability. Diversity without connection and all those things is just a hot mess, okay? And oneness, what do we even say for the people who are on here who are like spiritual into personal growth and these things like that? What do we even say from every spiritual text, from every tradition that the universe even came into being for? To differentiate itself, to experience itself. And you can't experience something you're one with. You can't be intimate with something you're one with. So we actually, yes, we want to honor our differences. But what I feel the work that Shelly and I really teach is the work of connection. You know, because there's no point in building this bridge to equality if all we're going to do is get on the bridge together and fight. You know, we have to learn how to be on the bridge together. And so this is the deep work, you know, that we're here to do. And I think when I ask myself the question of, racism ended in 2050. What do we do now? I first say, well, the first thing that we do is get people to even question the fact, like, can't, whoa, I never thought about racism ending. I think that's like step one, you know? And then step two is given the time that we're in right now is helping people connect. Because I know that Shelly and I both see and believe in all of our work across the divides you would never even imagine that we would be in is that most people are good. I really believe that most people are good. I don't just believe it. I know it. I know it for a fact. Yeah. And most people actually will do better and want to do better when approached with love and kindness and curiosity and compassion. What we also know is that most people and all people, I don't care how evolved you are, if they're approached with shame and anger and blame and guilt, the centers of the brain shut down that even allow you to learn and connect. So we want to learn how to connect and how to help people do that across what are considered divides so that we can start stepping into walking toward a new vision together. I love everything about this. I love that what overall it's like, let's move it from our heads and stop pretending that it can just walk around without our body and like, let's drop it all in, be a complete human and connect on that level with one another. I really appreciate the work you do. If people want to find this course and find you, where do we go? Yeah. So easy spaces. So I want to share this first because I know people are talking about it. Shelly's organization, Pandemic of Love. If there's anybody, because this is the one that is just to help the world, is if there's anybody out there who needs help during this time or can offer help during this time, going to pandemicoflove.com or .org, Shelly? Either, but .com is the name. Either. Yeah. Pandemicoflove.com. And literally this organization is helping hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the world every day. And so I know people are going through a hard time and there are those of you who can offer help. I would go to that site um, right away. And then to find our joint work together, the best thing to do right now is to go to liberationx.org. And that's how you can get on the wait list for our next liberation experience program and also see more about the work that we're doing together. And I'll also brag about Shelly, who's you all, all have heard her amazing book just came out, uh, Sit Down to Rise Up which is endorsed by President Joe Biden and is just like the most incredible book you've heard. Misasha like already quotes several things and stories. So definitely order Shelly's book online and you can find my book, Stay Woke, A Meditation Guide for the Rest of Us, anywhere that you can find Shelly's book on any retailer that you buy books from. And it's usually suggested because people like to buy them together. So there you go. 
It knows that we're affiliated. Even the algorithm we discovered knows that we're affiliated. <laughs> no, the algorithm even knows we're connected, which was cool. Yeah, it was funny. I went to her book page and it was like, people who buy this book also like Stay Woke. I was like, look. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the algorithms are amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Justin, don't forget to talk about your music because I, I mean, I listened to it and I'm like, it really has a feel. Like I kept wanting to listen, even though I needed to run to the next thing. I actually, and Misasha knows it takes a lot for me to sit and listen. I didn't turn it off. Thank you. And it's up for a Grammy, possibly. Woo! For Grammy consideration. Yeah, yeah. Grammy consideration right now for the first time, which is really cool. You know, the song that I'll invite people into, I use music in a lot of my work because as you can tell, a part of what Shelly and I know is that you don't get people to change just by thinking about and talking about change. You have to get people to feel. And the quickest way to feel is music, right? It's kind of like the intention of the, of the whole medium. Yeah. And so one of the songs that I'll turn people toward as it relates to this conversation is a song that I have called The Turning. I wrote it with the brothers Corin. And if you just search on anywhere, Spotify, Apple Music, Justin Michael Williams, you'll find all of my music. And you can look particularly for a song called The Turning that you might appreciate as it relates to this conversation today. That's fantastic. Thank you. Anything else, me, Sasha? No, I mean, I could talk to you all for two more hours. So yeah, this has been amazing. Truly amazing. And the conversation I needed today. I really need, I'm still, this is where I, I get it. If you have to go, I am currently sitting with this idea of how do we make this sustainable, the self-care piece of it. Both of you are doing big stuff. How do you know what you need? How do you justify? I mean, I know, I know intellectually I need to be at my best self, but I don't know how to establish my pillars of like, this is my core self anymore. Cause I feel battered after this year. And so if you have to go, I get it. Totally. Yeah. And a lot of people still feel that. Well, in the book, so this is also another shameless book plug, but in my book, Sit Down to Rise Up, I talk about how we have to formalize self-care plans, how to do that. And more importantly, then how to formalize a self-care community or community of care, right? And when you already start to build those safety nets, and start to build a formalized community of care that you share your self-care plan with, they can help to A, remove obstacles for you, hold you accountable, motivate you, and also check in with you and know when you're starting to peter out, even maybe before you even recognize that you are, right? And so they can offer you assistance and to carry some of your load and to, you know, to be there and remove some of the obstacles that are sort of getting in your way and you don't go at it alone. And I think that most of us, yes, we have like our sister squad and we've got our friends and we have like our BFFs and we have our family and we think like, oh, but we're good. We're good. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, that's not a formal type of community. You know, there's not an inherent understanding that the purpose for that community is to help each other. So until it's defined and named, then it becomes really challenging. So I would suggest for people to Google self-care plan. There's so many different ones out there. I don't have a favorite one because every what's right for me, the design that's right for me, you know, it may not be right for you. You might be a visual person. You might be a to-do list type person, et cetera. But I would say just Google that. There's so many different versions and PDFs that are out there. Make sure that you then share it with at least one other person. But my suggestion is at least five people. That's what really starts to form a community and start expanding that community out. Make sure that every person in that community has a plan. You share the plan with each other, that you identify the obstacles, 
because that's going to be your safety net. That's going to be your launch pad. And I think just we don't see it as something that we need to do because, you know, we think we're good. We think like, okay, we're good. We've got family. We've got our friends that we go out and have dinner with or, you know, have a glass of wine with or, you know, a cup of coffee with once in a while. But that's totally different than having a community of care. Well, and the way you described good, I think when people that I know ask for help, it's like, because when so many people come from a position of feeling grateful and they're like, well, I'm still better off than X, Y, Z, or I'm okay Yeah. compared to So when they start to ask for help, it's because they literally feel like they're dying. Like they're not, they either, something is at safety risk or like they're breaking, their bodies are breaking. And I want to encourage people to like, we can feel good. We deserve, when we're good enough, we deserve to feel wonderful. And so is there a question that we can ask ourselves to remember when it was that we felt excellent? And that's how do we return to that as opposed to the version of ourselves post-pandemic where we're squeaking by, we're good and like, we're okay-ish. Like, does that make sense what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. I mean, it does make sense, but I also think that we have to be realistic about what a new normal looks like. I don't think based on even what Justin was saying earlier, like, I think we're like, we have this feelings of ambiguous loss for the way we were before. And we haven't allowed ourselves to grieve, you know, that loss, that ambiguous loss, right? Because it's not a tangible loss. It's not like the loss of a human being, right? Per se. Some of us may, obviously, and many of us lost, you know, people that are meaningful for us in our lives. But I think we kind of discount, again, in our Western culture, like this ambiguous loss, which is real. This It's the way of life as it was before. That is something right? That we need to properly grieve collectively, but also individually. And so we may not ever get back to that place where we feel excellent. That may never happen. We may have to define a new norm for ourselves. And I think that it's that constant pursuit of striving to get back to normal that is actually keeping us from actually defining a new normal. So I think I would just say to people like, you know, define what your new normal looks like and what excellent can look like in this new normal. And it may look very different than what it looked like before. I agree. Thank you for this perspective. Thank you for this time. But I really appreciated a lot of the shift in conversation to be more holistic. I think you put words and explanations to this notion we had of how all of this is linked to self like introspection and personal growth, as opposed to being an out there thing and a big out there problem that we all have to work on. Like, what you're really talking about is let's move away from performative to really transformative change so an allyship. So I appreciate this conversation very much. And thank you for your time. Thank you all so much. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.